Welcome to Council for Unplugged podcast. My name is Renee Hamill. I'm your host, and I'm here with AFSCME Council 4. We are proud to represent 30,000 dedicated working people across the state of Connecticut. On today's show, we're going to be discussing the 2021 legislative session, and we have with us today AFSCME Council 4's legislative and political coordinator, Brian Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. Oh, thanks, Renee. It's a pleasure. And um, unfortunately, Zach uh, Levy, who is the other legislative and political coordinator, could not be here with us today. Um, but we're going to get right into the questions. We are about two weeks away from the end of the legislative session. Uh, Brian, tell us where we are at with getting a budget passed. Oh, Renee, we are right at the moment of truth. It's crunch time. We're about a week and a half away from the end of the session. Zach is furiously monitoring both the House and Senate as they uh, try to complete their business. The budget is in negotiations right now between Democratic leaders of the House and Senate majorities and Governor Lamont. And they are showing some signs of perhaps getting close to an agreement. Uh, we, we read the tea leaves these days by reading the newspapers because we can't get in the Capitol due to COVID. It's very frustrating. But it sounds like they're getting closer to agreeing on a two-year $46 billion budget. What would you say are some of the things that um, separate the, the budget from the governor and the budgets proposed by the legislative leaders? Well, the big thing, Renee, is revenue. Uh, the General Assembly, I think, is very wisely thinking long term and thinking that um, Connecticut has very volatile revenue streams. And uh, that's proved true across the country, not just in Connecticut. That when the economy turns down, it gets tough for government. And when the economy uh, turns up, we can get some surprising surpluses. This time about a year ago, we were looking at a billion dollars shortfall in each of the next three or four years. Right now, there's uh, just slightly less than a half million dollars surplus. No one saw this coming. Um, due to the ravages of COVID, it, it was expected we would be uh, much worse off. And... Uh, thankfully, the federal government has stepped up to the plate. President Biden has uh, injected a lot of relief money in his state and municipal government in the overall federal budget. And that is believed to have uh, really increased economic activity across the board, which puts us in a much better space. So um, the things that you were talking about um, with the American Rescue Plan dollars coming in from the federal government. Um, and we also have a lot of money coming in from the tax revenue, a lot more than we expected. Um, a lot of people are saying this is not the right time to raise taxes on the rich because, um, you know, it's looking pretty good as far as revenue. And we have this extra revenue on top of that from the federal government. How would you respond to um, people that say that? I would respond that this is the perfect time 
to restructure revenue when we have some breathing room instead of doing it in a crisis where uh, panicky decisions get made. It helps to think long term. It helps to plan ahead. The state knows that we have uh, payments that come due regularly that uh, will exceed what's currently in the budget. We have an aging population. We're going to have health care costs increase. Health care costs across the board for every industry, every business, every family are increasing these days. A big part of the state budget goes into health care, a gigantic part. So now would be the perfect time to plan ahead. And it's a great time to raise taxes on rich people. Rich folks have never seen more money flowing in. They have, uh, in some cases, almost doubled their fortune during this pandemic, while a lot of families have lost money. Uh, The General Assembly, uh, led by Senator Von Farah, have put forward a plan that would tax the richest of the rich in Connecticut. It actually would restore some of the taxes the rich people have traditionally paid, uh, but rich people over the last 40 years have been able to shift their tax obligation over on the middle class and lower income backs. I think a perfect example of this, and it's black and white. I mean, it's so provable. The UCAL uh, Berkeley Economics Department, which is internationally renowned, uh, just declared that the Average and lower income families in America pay about 24% of their annual income in tax. The richest families in America pay 23% of their income in uh, tax. Now, the way it used to be in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was the rich people whose top marginal federal tax rate was 95% actually wound up paying about 50% tax rate. And we're talking uh, other annual income, families like the Rockefellers, families uh, like um, uh, the the equivalent of Bill Gates today, the equivalent of Jeff Bezos. So those folks had vast fortunes that would sit untaxed, but their annual income, they would pay money on. Uh, what Senator Fonfair has proposed and the Senate Democrats have, have agreed on is reinstituting a capital gains tax on individuals making over a half a million dollars a year and couples making over a million dollars a year, and the increase would be 2%. So in effect, those families who are now paying 6.9% income tax would have their uh state tax obligation go up to 8.9%, which is still lower than that paid by their equivalents in New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. So this this bit that Connecticut somehow taxes rich people at a high level is a myth. Uh, they pay 6.9%. It's the lowest in the Northeast. It, it's uh, something of a steal. And at a time... When that shifting of rich people's tax obligation on our backs has made the property tax for middle income and lower folks skyrocket, 
which hurts the cities, which hurts the suburbs, it would make sense to readjust that. Um, One of the things that's really disturbing and every American should worry about is the U.S. Treasury has said that almost half of Americans are either low income or hovering just above being poor. When 50% of your country is poor, you've got to watch out. That is a bad indicator. It's a bad indicator for economic activity. It's a bad indicator for democracy. It's just a bad thing all around. Yeah, and I think that uh, you touch on a lot of the issues that we're seeing now. I mean, this is a pivotal point. Um, There's a report that was released last week that said Connecticut's billionaires amassed $12.6 billion in new wealth since the pandemic started. Um, but I read an article today that said that um, if any tax increases are proposed, uh, Lamont would veto this and the Republicans would back him with that veto. Um, but there seems like they are trying other ways um, to include some equity in the next budget. Um, Speaker of the House Matt Ritter is suggesting borrowing $200 million for the next decade to invest in our urban centers. So I wanted to know what you think about that proposal. I think that it is a fascinating proposal that casts an eye to the future. One of the big problems Connecticut has had is that, that uh, our cities are poor. The average income in Hartford is about it is under $25,000 uh, in annual income a year. Uh, Hartford, Bridgeport and New Haven have similar numbers. Uh, if anything has been shown to us, it's that thriving cities create thriving state economies. And when the state of the cities is poor, the state of the state economy worsens. Uh, one of the challenges that Hartford, Bridgeport, New Haven, New London, New Britain all face is not only that they have lots of low-income residents, uh, who work, by the way, but just are in, in jobs that are not paying what they should pay. One of the problems is that about 50% of their land mass is off the tax rolls. Um, if you go to a suburb, about 85% of their land is uh, taxable. Property taxes being paid on the vast bulk of most uh, suburbs' land mass. Then you get to the cities because there are hospitals, uh, universities, um, places to help people with nonprofits, churches, yeah, exactly, Renee. So, so we created this untenable situation, and Speaker Ritter's plan casts an eye towards straightening that out. So, I, I think it's an intriguing proposal, and uh, has an eye toward the future. So besides the budget, which is the biggest thing um, for this legislative session, there are a lot of other bills that we've supported or that we've blocked um, that have been a part of our legislative agenda. Um, Please give me an update on where we are at with some of those bills. There is certainly a lot going on up at the Capitol. Uh, One of the good things that happened is for public employees and keeping our, our union strong and therefore protecting our pay, pension, health care, and working conditions adequately happened just a few days ago. And that is a bill passed that 
allows Connecticut unions and potential and current union members to have a proper legal framework in the aftermath of the uh, Janus versus AFSCME U.S. Supreme Court case. That court case, which was funded by uh, conservative billionaires who were trying to destroy unions, uh, basically said that all public employee unions are open shop. In other words, it was an attempt to bankrupt unions. And what it did was say, uh, hey, if you can have all the benefits of a union, but you don't have to pay them dues. Um, I, I would liken it to everybody's got to pay taxes in Connecticut. Everybody's got to pay taxes in the U.S. It'd be great if we lived in utopia and we didn't need tax law or the IRS and everybody would just be willing to pay their fair share, but humans don't work that way. So that this court case was an attempt to bankrupt us. What shocked those billionaires is our members didn't quit. Our members realized that their union, them working together, which is the union, has created a decent lifestyle for most of them, a decent pay, a decent retirement, a decent health care. Uh, some of our members have lost pensions lately on the municipal cycle. That's wrong. Every American who works should have a pension, just like every Canadian does. Every French citizen, English citizen, Norwegian, German, Irish. There's nothing uniquely uh, foolish in Americans that we can't have pensions. Sadly, so many of our citizens are, are willing to settle for that. This Janus bill creates a legal framework where we have the right to talk to new employees. And most of all, it prevents an employer from urging members to not join a union or to join a union. They should have no, the boss should have no say in that either way. It should be a relationship strictly between the worker and their union. Uh, so that, that, bill that passed both chambers and the governor intends to sign is a very good thing. Another great win it is so far, I don't, I don't want to jinx it, is that we've gotten a post-traumatic stress injury bill that would cover correctional employees and emergency dispatchers, EMS workers, healthcare workers, uh, through the state Senate. Uh, we believe we have the votes in the state house. We know the correctional employees face over a 30% PTSD rate. It's a stressful job. Uh, the mortality rate is very difficult for correctional families across the country. The average correctional employee does not reach 60 years of age. Uh, we tr I hope we're doing better than that in Connecticut. Um, but, but we've got to recognize and take care of those guardians who who risk their lifeguarding us. So this is a step in the right direction. Uh, sadly, the public uh, health care insurance option was killed by the big insurers. Uh, what we've tried to do is create a big insurance pool to bring down health care costs. There are 250,000 lives in the state health care insurance pool that Connecticut runs. Because it's so big, it has become one of the most cost-effective and low-increase uh, in healthcare quality healthcare plans in the state. 
We want to open that up to municipalities, to nonprofits, to small businesses, to families who otherwise can't get health care, because that state employee plan is a quality plan. It, it's no, it doesn't have any frills. You can't you know, get a nose job or cosmetic surgery. But if you have cancer, you don't lose your house. Right now, 30% of all home foreclosures are because somebody in the family got cancer. That's just not right. The rate for that in Canada, zero. They have national health care. Nobody loses their house when they get cancer. Same for England, Ireland, Norway, all our pure countries. We got to catch up. Uh, but the insurers threatened to move 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, depends who you talk to and what the threat of the day is out of Connecticut if we do this. So it's a big, ugly threat from the insurers. Um, we have an out of control insurance, healthcare insurance system that eats up almost 20% of America's gross national product. That's about twice as expensive as our pure countries have. Businesses, the most profitable corporations in the country, will tell you that their OPEB, their long-term health care cost, is unsustainable. Something must be done. Then we look at insurance company CEO salaries. I believe it's the head of Aetna paid himself $79 million a year. I, I'm, I'm a capitalist. I believe in a, a, a mixed free market. But how does an individual add $79 million of value to a business? If he's doing anything short of spinning straw into gold, he's ripping off his customers, his shareholders, and the taxpayers because government is a major uh, buyer of health care. Uh, we also stopped an attempt to privatize our Department of Motor Vehicle worker jobs. So far, knock on wood, the session's not done yet. The Department of Motor Vehicles yields a lot of revenue to the state of Connecticut. It's a cash cow. Costs about $60 million to run. It yields about $450 million. It, it helps pay for all those things government needs to do, like um, staff prisons, like keep the highways safe, like keep children safe at DCF, like um, and, and have clean water, have clean air. And a lot of privateers realize if they could move in, like happened in New Jersey before, they could sort of plunder those coffers and make a profit. And our members have stopped that year after year after year. Um, I think we've stopped an attempt to do that this year, but you don't know until the session ends on June 9th. Well, we only have two weeks left, but um, it's great that there's a lot of movement on the things that we've been pushing for um, that are really going to support workers. I do have a follow-up question about the Janus bill. Um, there has been misinformation out there that uh, we are going to, if it's passed, we'll be getting um, potential members' addresses, home addresses, and um, people have been concerned about that. How would you respond to somebody who was worried about us getting their address? I, I, I would say largely the issue is malarkey. The only way the union gets the members ad, potential members' addresses if they give it to them. Uh, if they sign a card saying we willingly 
uh, take this step, then we can present it to the employer with the employee's knowledge that their personal info will be turned over. It's vital that we're able to communicate to our members, to tell them when the vote on their contract is up, to let them know uh, what's going on with their pay, their benefits, their health care, to let them know what what new benefit the union has that that they uh, could take advantage of. And it's something that's gone on forever. I mean, mean, it's just ridiculous, the scare tactics that have been going on. Uh, One of the scare tactics that cropped up uh, just recently was, hey, if um, law enforcement officers or shielded folks, and about 25% of our members are shielded, uh, if this law passes or information will go out to the public, that is a complete lie. Well, thank you for clearing that up for us. I think that's very important for people to know. So one of the issues that's been very important for our members, um, especially those that were essential workers that have worked throughout the pandemic, putting their lives on the line, is pandemic hazard pay. Um, Can you tell us about what's the latest info of where that is at? Yeah, that has been quite a tussle. Um, We believe strongly that our members who are essential workers, some deem so, but but everybody who showed up was essential, or or they they would have been allowed to work from home. The people who showed up should get some recognition of the risk they took. And in, in, in some members' cases, the great sacrifices they made at our Department of Motor Vehicle offices, I think we have four major outbreaks among the workers of COVID because they're dealing directly across the counter with the public. Uh, our DCF workers have had to go on child protection visits all through the pandemic. They don't get to stop. Our police officers have had to do wellness checks and literally have gone in and found the bodies of people who expired from COVID. Uh, 30% of our correction workers have tested positive for COVID contamination. Uh, Some of our members have uh, gotten very seriously ill and we have had members die. Uh, We believe it's incumbent upon the state to recognize the sacrifice and bravery of these folks. Um, There is a great dispute over who should get this COVID premium pay and uh, how much it should be and how it should be dispersed. And we are in the thick of this fight. Uh, Governor Lamont only mentioned two groups of workers who he uh, cited as uh, getting it. He said correctional employees should get $1,000. Nursing home workers should get $500. We've said we think that is a vastly insufficient recognition and that these workers are due a lot more. And we've also said that is far too narrow a constriction of workers um, to to just limit it to those folks. We're hoping to convince Governor Lamont that a much broader array of workers should be eligible for this recognition pay and that it should be a higher dollar figure. Um, So we continue to fight on that. And we have sent out action alerts and it is vital for our members to contact Governor Lamont, their own state senator, their own state representative, and make the request to have that premium pay. 
Um, I think our people have done their duty, and I think the state has a duty and the towns have a duty to recognize um, the bravery and the sacrifice of these workers. Well said. If you have not received an email for the action alert to contact your legislature, legislators and the governor about the pandemic hazard pay, please go on to our website, council4.org, to uh, do that. We really need everybody involved so that we can get pandemic hazard pay passed for our members who uh, really put their lives on the line. So uh, our final question, um, we have a people committee meeting coming up on June 17th. Um, for those that don't know, our People Committee stands for Public Employees Organized to Promote Legislative Equality. Um, in this meeting, they're going to be nominating leaders. Uh, Brian, tell us what is the importance of Council for members being involved in politics and engaged in things like the People Committee um, to prepare for this year's municipal election? Renee, I, I think we're at a time where Americans are starting to realize that democracy has uh, taken a, a hit. And the way to restore democracy is to get involved in politics. And I know politics can be a dirty word, but it shouldn't be because we live in a democracy and every citizen has the right to try to determine the future of this country and hopefully improve the future of this country. And we are a politically active organization. We have supported Democratic candidates, Republican candidates, third-party candidates. We are owned by no party, but our members are of various parties, and we urge them to get involved uh, in, in whatever party they're in, but we urge them to get involved in the union's uh, political activities. What you just mentioned, our People Committee, is a voluntary uh, group of members who stepped up to the plate to help decide which candidates we should endorse. They interview candidates. They question candidates face-to-face -face sometimes. They help come up with a questionnaire to determine what questions are most important to AFSCME families. And municipal politics, the, the municipal races come up this November. The municipal races are sometimes overlooked, but they are among the most important because the municipal races are the training grounds for the future state representatives, state senators, governor. I think Governor Lamont's first office was on his town meeting board, uh, basically kind of like a little town council. Um, most of the congressmen started in, in local elected office. So it's really vital for our municipal members. It's extremely vital to have someone who's common sense and fair sitting across a negotiating table. One advantage our members have is we do have some say, thank God that we live in a democracy, in electing our own bosses. We just need more members to take democracy seriously. And the people uh, process that you just cited, Renee, is vital to that. Well, I want to thank our guest, Brian Anderson, Legislative and Political Coordinator with AFSCME Council 4. Thank you so much for joining us, Brian. I always learn a lot from you, and I appreciate uh, your wealth of knowledge that you share with us. Always a pleasure, Renee, and I'll, I'll send Zach's regards as he studiously monitors the House and Senate, which are in full swing even as I speak. 
Uh, I'm your host, Renee Hamill. Um, I urge you to check our website, council4.org, for an update on uh, the legislative session when it finally comes to a close. Um, Thank you so much for listening, and you have been unplugged. As always, thanks for listening to our Council 4 Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major social platforms by searching for Council 4 AFSME. Our website is council4.org. My name's Larry Dorman, and you've been unplugged.